Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to return to an old series in the podcast, looking at the history and people behind some eponymously named surgical instruments. The subject for this one is the pot scissors, named after an American pediatric surgeon who made some important contributions to that field, and in particular, cardiac issues in children. And I have another new segment which I hope you like, which we'll get to in a bit. But for now, let's cut to the chase in this episode of Legends of Surgery. You'll know if you listen to the last show that we'll be starting the episode with a bit of trivia. I'll ask you a question, and at the end of the show, I'll give you the answer. Good luck. Today's question is, how did the letters RX become shorthand for a medical prescription? Have a think on that one. In the meantime, let's get to our subject, the American pediatric surgeon Willis John Potts. He was born in the small town of Sheboygan, Wisconsin, on March 22, 1895. His family moved to a farm when Willis was just four years old, and later, following the death of his father, he and his older brother took over operations on the farm. Once Willis raised enough money, he left the farm to enroll in a private school in Cedar Grove before studying at Hope College in Michigan. Now, he already spoke English and Dutch, which he learned from his grandparents, and added to the list by studying Latin, Greek, and German. In his senior year, Potts joined the U.S. Chemical Warfare Service and served as a sergeant in World War I. After the war, he resumed his studies at the University of Chicago, earning a Bachelor of Science. Potts then applied to the medical school there and was accepted, despite being one credit short of the requirements for admission. The head of the chemistry department, Julius Stieglitz, allowed him to earn the credit if he could complete the required coursework by the end of the academic term, which was in 18 days. But somehow he did it and entered medical school. Now, the way it worked at the time was that two years were spent at the University of Chicago and two years at Rush Medical College. And here's a couple of fun facts. Rush Medical College is named after Benjamin Rush, who was the only physician with medical school training to sign the Declaration of Independence. He also served as the Surgeon General to the Continental Army during the American Revolution. But back to Potts. After medical school, he did a residency in general surgery at the Presbyterian Hospital from 1925 to 1928, then did further postgraduate training in Frankfurt, Germany in 1930, before returning to the Chicago area to practice. Now, following the bombing of Pearl Harbor, he organized the 25th Evacuation Hospital, serving as its commanding officer, first as lieutenant colonel and then as a full colonel, in the Pacific Theater from 1942 to 1945. During the war... Potts read about the early work of Ladd, see episode 56, and Gross on pediatric surgery, and following his return from service, resolved to devote his career full-time to operating on children. In 1945, Potts was appointed Surgeon-in-Chief at Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. At the time, the primary operations being performed on children were laparotomy for acute appendicitis and pyloromyotomy for hypertrophic pyloric stenosis which is basically splitting a muscle at the distal end of the stomach so that food can pass through. Now, Potts resolved to change this and to establish a residency program in pediatric surgery. To learn more, Potts traveled to Boston to spend three months observing at the children's hospital there. Here's a quote about the experience from his own book entitled The Surgeon and the Child, written in 1959. Quote, There are in this country approximately 50 children's hospitals well-staffed by capable pediatricians. Less than 15 of them have adequate, diversified surgical departments capable of rendering all types of surgical care. 
Sometimes it seems that the infant and the child have been forgotten, not by the physician or the pediatrician, but by the surgeon. Pediatric surgery is constantly fascinating and tremendously rewarding. It is broad enough to interest the worker, difficult enough to satisfy the ambitious, and new enough to stimulate the imagination. The infant with no language but a cry, and the child with no words to express the desire to be well and normal, ask that we make available to them the benefits of increased knowledge of their surgical diseases." End quote. Along this vein, Potts recruited competent specialists in fields such as orthopedics, anesthesiology, urology, and plastic surgery, and separated the department into divisions headed by these recruits, and encouraged them to learn existing surgical procedures in their specialties and engage in research to develop new ones. As for Potts himself, he became one of the earliest physicians to focus on surgical treatment of heart problems in children. He met Dr. Stanley Gibson, a gifted pediatric cardiologist, and began to work on congenital heart disease. Along with the head of pathology, Dr. Joseph Baggs, Potts collected and preserved more than 200 specimens of congenital heart problems. He then trained himself on how to surgically treat these diseases at the animal research laboratory housed in the Sprague Pavilion, which at one time had housed patients with contagious diseases requiring isolation. Following the development of antibiotics and immunizations, the space was no longer needed and became the animal quarters along with a sterile operating room. No new ideas were applied to human patients before they had been fully developed in the research facility, and no new surgical resident was, to quote one paper, inflicted on patients before proving themselves technically proficient in the lab. Once again, a shout out to all those animals sacrificed for our benefit. Now, according to one former student, Potts was an absolute bear on precise techniques and the gentle handling of tissues. Here's a couple quotes. If you sponge the wound and the baby wiggles, you're sponging too hard. Treat the tissue like a case of acute orchitis. That is yours. Now, for those that don't know, it means inflammation of the testicles. Remember that surgical residents were all males at the time. So let's go to some of Potts' work in cardiac surgery for children. One of the most famous operations of that era was the Blalock-Thomas-Tossig subclavian pulmonary artery anastomosis, a treatment for blue baby syndrome, caused by a number of congenital defects, meaning present at birth, the most famous of which is probably Tetralogy of Fallot. Now, blue baby syndrome, by the way, is a catch-all term for conditions that cause cyanosis, or blueness of the skin, in babies as a result of low oxygen levels in the blood. Potts was inspired by this too, along with his first protege, Sidney Smith, attempt an anastomosis of the left main pulmonary artery and the descending thoracic aorta. This sends more blood to the lungs to improve oxygenation. Now, in order to perform this, he needed some specialized surgical equipment. His neighbor in Oak Park, Illinois, named Bruno Richter, was a talented craftsman who made surgical instruments for a local manufacturer. Pretty convenient, right? Anyway, Richter helped them develop the Potsmith aortic exclusion clamp by modifying an existing instrument, an eyelid retractor. Remember, baby aortas are much smaller than our own, obviously. So using this instrument, the team performed the first such successful aortopulmonary anastomosis in September of 1946. Let's talk about it. Now, before attempting this groundbreaking operation, Potts perfected the technique in the animal lab on 30 dogs, including one named Caesar. That's a good boy. On September 13, 1946, Potts performed the world's first aortopulmonary anastomosis on a 19-month-old baby girl named Diane Schnell. 
This involved making a tiny incision in the aorta just 5 sixteenths of an inch wide, and a similar one in the pulmonary artery, then sewing the two openings together. Imagine doing that on a tiny child. But the Potts shunt, as it became known, was believed to be a safer operation than the one that Blaylock did, which we covered in episode 32. Following the operation, Diane recovered quickly, leaving the hospital 19 days later. The case gained international fame, and Potts would go on to save thousands of babies. But let's finish Diane's story. Now, dear listener, I was able to find an article about her in a Milwaukee paper. Diane lived life to the fullest. While she would require four additional heart operations, she was an avid bowler, played bingo with her friends, and was a Girl Scout leader. Diane also married and had two children, Jeffrey and Carolyn. She died in January of 2007 at the age of 62. And the article also noted that Potts called her every year on the anniversary of the operation that gave her that opportunity at life. I mean, that's what this is all about, really. Now, as more surgeons took up the technique, they found it difficult to judge the appropriate size for a Potts shunt, and they were often either making it too small, resulting in insufficient blood flow to the lungs, with continued hypoxia, meaning low oxygen in the blood, or they're making it too big, leading to too much blood flow to the lungs, and eventually congestive heart failure. Some patients developed aneurysms in the left pulmonary artery. Others had severe bleeding when surgeons attempted to take down the shunt. The procedure fell out of favor as other options became available, but as they say, what's old is new again, and the POTS shunt has found a new purpose as a palliative operation, a so-called reverse POTS shunt for children with pulmonary artery hypertension when all else fails. But back to Potts and his craftsman partner, Richter. Together, they designed a number of other surgical instruments, including a fine-tooth vascular clamp intended for use in interrupting a patent ductus arteriosus, which is a small vessel connecting the fetal pulmonary artery to the aorta that is meant to close off at birth as the circulation switches from fetal to newborn, which, if you've ever studied it, is wild. Now, those are still used today and are sometimes called the Potts-Smith tissue forceps. They also created a pulmonary valvulotome, an instrument with retractable blades used to cut the valves. But let's get to the matter that brought us here, the pot scissors. These were modified Metzenbaum scissors, see episode 60, with beveled outer edges that facilitate separation of infant tissues with minimal pressure on structures below. The sharp point and beveled outer edges allow easy, blunt separation of tissues, meaning without cutting them, and accurate, sharp dissection, meaning cutting them, without changing instruments, substantially reducing operating time, which would have been precious in the early days of pediatric cardiac surgery, and probably still is. All right, so we've covered one amazing first-of-its-kind surgical intervention, the POTS shunt. But can you believe he actually had two world firsts? Time to talk about the second one now. Just a bit of background to start. This involves something called a pulmonary artery sling, which is a rare congenital, again meaning born with, abnormality where the left pulmonary artery originates from the right pulmonary artery and encircles the right main stem bronchus, which is the airway to the right lung, and passes between the trachea and esophagus before entering the hilum of the lung. Now you don't need to fully visualize this aberrant anatomy, just know that it causes compression of the trachea and main stem bronchus, which is bad. Most infants with this have severe respiratory distress which in Potts' time were called dying spells. It was first reported in 1897 after being identified in a post-mortem autopsy on a seven-month-old. But 
The first successful surgical repair was performed by Potts in 1953 at the Children's Memorial Hospital. The patient was six months old, and given that it was the 1950s, preoperative workup, particularly imaging, was pretty limited, and so Potts took them to the operating room without a definitive diagnosis. He opened the chest through the right fourth intercostal, meaning between the ribs, space, and once he'd assessed the situation, decided to divide the left pulmonary artery near its origin from the right pulmonary artery, remove it from the space between the trachea and esophagus, and reanastomose it anterior, or in front of, the trachea. His young patient left the hospital on post-op day 11 and had long-term survival, free of airway complications. Now here's a quote from Potts himself about the operation, quote, It was difficult to know what to do for this child who could not live without relief. I considered clamping, dividing, and reanastomosing either the bronchus or the left pulmonary artery. I also considered a right pneumonectomy, meaning removal of the entire lung. The possibility of this extreme course of action was given only brief consideration because of the defeatist attitude it elicited in the face of an unusual situation, end quote. Oh, and just to add to the legend, Potts is also the one that coined the term pulmonary artery sling when he wrote this up in 1958. So, as mentioned, I'm adding yet another segment to the show. Now, I have a love for etymology, as you probably know, and so why not make it a regular part of the podcast? I'm calling it Tyler's Etymology Interlude. And before we get to today's word, I'd be remiss to not mention the etymology of the word etymology. It comes from two Greek words, logia, the study of, which we see a lot in medicine, think of any ology word, and etymon, which means the true sense or original meaning. I love that. And interlude comes from the Latin inter, meaning between, and ludus, meaning play. So an interlude used to be a short skit between acts of a play, often featuring a humorous character to provide a break from the heavier material of the play, which definitely works in this scenario too. And one last quick fact. Ludus also gives us ludicrous, which originally meant pertaining to play or sport. Okay, let's get back to our subject. Have you ever wondered why we call the fluid in our vascular systems blood, and yet the medical terminology is quite different? Well, think about it. When someone is bleeding out, the medical term is exsanguinate. And if you study blood, that's not called bloodology, but rather hematology. Now, as regular listeners of the podcast will know, a lot of medical terms tend to be either Latin or Greek in, or in origin. However, every once in a while, another language sneaks in there to get a word in edgewise, as my grandpa used to say. In this case, ancient Germanic. Now, blood is a very old word coming from the Proto-Germanic blodum, itself from the Proto-Indo-European root, blotu, which is thought to mean to swell, gush, spurt, or that which bursts out, which makes sense if you think about when these ancient peoples would have seen blood. That root, blotu, is related to bloma, or flower, which offers the same sense of blossoming outward. You'll never look at a flower the same again. Now, hematology, there's that logia again, has its origins in Greek, from the word hemo, meaning blood, and exsanguinate has sanguis as its root from the Latin word for blood. And of course, that also gives us the English word sanguine, which dates back to the theory of the four humors, but that's a topic for another day. For now, let's get back to our main attraction, the pediatric surgeon, Dr. Willis Potts. In addition to being one of the pioneers of American pediatric surgery and innovating pediatric cardiac surgery, Potts found the time to write not one, but two books. I'm quite jealous. These were 
The Surgeon and the Child in 1959, which I referenced earlier, and Your Wonderful Baby in 1966. That last book came out in his retirement, as Potts served as Surgeon-in-Chief of Children's Memorial from 1946 to 1960, as well as being a faculty member at Northwestern University. Now before I wrap up, I did learn a few interesting tidbits about Potts of a more personal nature. I do think this adds to the story as it humanizes these historical figures and makes it easier to see them as regular people who have achieved enormous things, which I hope provides you, dear listener, with a bit of inspiration. Now, Potts was a deeply religious man of the Unitarian faith. In a newspaper article from 1965, he was described as probably the world's only hymn-singing surgeon. It was said that Potts would hum, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen for Difficult Cases, and Jesus Loves Me for Easy Ones. And there's also a slightly darker story here, but don't worry, there's a happy ending. Potts married Henrietta Nieben in 1922 and had three children. One of these children, his son Edward, disappeared from the University of Rochester in 1948. At the time, his son was a 21-year-old married father of two in his third year of pre-medical studies. On July 29th, Potts called a press conference. Now, Potts himself was due for gallbladder surgery, but had been waiting because, quote, I wanted my boy with me, end quote, but couldn't put it off any longer. He had the surgery on July 31st. Oh, and by the way, all this comes from the New York Times. You can still read it if you have access. It was written that Potts chain-smoked during the press conference and that he hated the publicity but was ready to do anything to get his son back. He'd made previous attempts to find him, saying at the conference, describing his experience, quote, Did you ever wander around Times Square in New York from 9 o'clock in the morning until midnight hoping to see who you were looking for? I did, several times. When I got tired, I sat on the fender of parked automobiles, end quote. Now, on August 5th, the New York Times reported that his son had been found. He was at the Air Force Base at Lackland Field, Texas. Now, it's unclear from the articles if he'd joined up, but at least there was a happy ending where he'd been found safe and sound. In 1960, Potts stepped down as chief, but continued to operate and conduct research until 1965 when he retired to Sarasota, Florida. At his June 1965 retirement party at the historic Sheraton Blackstone Hotel, there were 300 people in attendance, including a number of his blue baby patients, a visual reminder of the lives he'd saved over his career. One paper quoted him saying about retirement that most surgeons should stop operating at 70 years of age. A few can continue far beyond that age, and some should never have started. And by the time he retired, open-heart surgery was becoming common. Potts said that it should be performed by young men whose fingers are nimble, whose minds are agile, and whose coronaries are pliable, a particularly prescient comment, as he died of a heart attack in 1968 at the age of 73. When Potts joined Children's Memorial Hospital back in 1930, there was only one pediatric surgeon in the U.S. By the time he retired in 1960, there were 75. That is his legacy. Now, as regular listeners know, I like to provide direct quotes from our subjects, as I think it brings us closer to understanding and learning from them. So let's end this part of the podcast with some of Dr. Potts' writing, which I think reflects his deep understanding of what it means to be a surgeon for children. In an article that appeared in the 1956 June edition of the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. Potts wrote about his views on the pediatric heart, quote, The physical heart of a child is just a piece of living muscle marvelously adapted to its sole function of pumping blood. 
It is a rugged mechanism that will tolerate the ravages of infection, the scars resulting from impaired blood supply, and the approaches of surgeon's tools. It is the most efficient, self-sustaining pump in the world. In a philosophical sense, the heart of a child is a delicate mechanism, sensitive to the slightest wounds of fear, insecurity, indifference, thoughtlessness, and misunderstanding, end quote. Okay, we're at the end of the episode, so let's talk trivia. To remind you, the question was, how did the letters Rx become shorthand for a medical prescription? It turns out that it's an abbreviation for the Latin word recipere, which means to take or receive. A bonus fact, the world's first recorded prescription was etched on a clay tablet in Mesopotamia dating back to around 2100 BCE. So that's not a surprising answer for what Rx stands for, but there's a bit more interesting history to unwrap. The word recipere became, in English, recipe, dating back to the 1580s and meant a prescribed formula. It wasn't until 1716 that it came to mean instructions for preparing a particular food. So the next time you're cooking your favorite meal, you can think about how recipe was originally about prescriptions. I guess food really is medicine. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you download episodes. Leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter or X at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook or Instagram as Legends of Surgery. Or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.